Well, good morning, Westmount. And truly it is a privilege to once again gather together on this Lord's Day to fellowship together, to participate in worship together of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. We are continuing in the book of 1 John, chapter 3, and last week we completed looking at what it is like and what it, is, what it means to be called children of God, and that indeed we are. And as I said last week, with being a child of God, being called a child of God, being a part of the family of God, that comes with rights and privileges, but it also has responsibilities with it. And we saw some of those responsibilities last week, and today we're going to dive into another big responsibility that, again, is not the first time John's mentioning this. It won't be the last. He's mentioned it a number of times, which is quite significant because he mentions it so many times, and we'll get into that as we get into the text. And as you see from the overhead behind me, our title, our topic this morning is Brothers. It's a plea, it's a command, and I hope it is the desire of all our hearts here this morning that we love one another, as we are called to, to do. So we are going to again look at First John chapter 3, verses 11 through to 24. And I'll just read a few verses as we open up. Verse 11, For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not, we should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you, have, you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. God, may you use your word and speak to our hearts, convict us of sin, forgive us, Lord, when we have failed to love each other, to love one another as you have called us to love one another. Forgive us, Lord, when we have harbored resentment or hate or envy or strife in our hearts towards our brothers and our sisters in Christ. And may, Lord, your word speak and pierce the hearts of each individual here this morning, including myself, as it is preached and as they hear it. And God, if there is one here that has not accepted Christ as Lord, we do pray for that one that today they will come to the saving knowledge of Christ. For us as believers, God, if there's any here 
any of us here who is harboring any kind of resentment or hate or malice or strife towards a brother, may they make amends. May they restore that fellowship and that relationship with their brother and with you before the end of this sermon, for Christ's sake. Amen. So if you recall, John does not address what our relationship with God ought to look like. He doesn't just address that. He also addresses what our relationship with each other ought to look like, what it must look like. So he doesn't just focus on the vertical relationship. He focuses on both the vertical and the horizontal and he has, he makes these linked. They are linked together. They're not just one or the other. It's not just a matter of all that matters, and you will hear this from Christians or professing Christians. All that matters is my relationship between me and my God. And when you hear that, it means I don't really care about you as a supposed brother or sister in Christ. All I care about is fixing myself and making sure that I am in the right standing before me and my God. And that's not biblical. That isn't biblical. Not that you're not supposed to have a right standing before God, but it can't just be isolated. It can't just be that. It has to be your relationship towards God as well as your relationship towards those who are of the household of God, whether it's here at Westmount or other believers. So John doesn't shy away from making sure that he focuses on what our relationship with God should look like, which is what we saw last week. And now he's getting into that relationship has to affect how we live down here as well. And how we live down here also affects how our relationship is with our God. So that's the interconnection there. It the theme, this is his theme that it runs right throughout the book. And again, it's not the first time, as I mentioned, that John is exhorting the readers here, the recipients of this letter, to love one another. And it will not be the last time either. By way of reminder, in 1 John chapter 2, verses 7 to 11, loving one another, he presented in that passage was presented as the new but old commandment that we looked at some time ago. And this he equates loving the brethren to walking in the light, while stating that if we don't, if we do not love our brothers in Christ, we are not walking in the light. We are indeed walking in the darkness. So the theme of love was also seen in chapter 2, verse 15 to 17, but this was in a negative sense where we're saying this is what you should not love as Christians. Don't love the world. Don't love the things that are of the world because everything that is in the world is contrary, is contradistinction to what God commands of us. So we are called not to love the world. And again today in our text, we see John making a distinction between love and hate. 
And as we will see as we make our way through these verses, hating one's brother in whatever form that may come, in whatever shape it may come in, you might not define it as hate. You might say it's a slight resentment or animosity or whatever it is. If it's not love, it is equated to murder. It is equated to murdering your brother. It's equated to walking in the darkness. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 to 26, Jesus even goes beyond what John says here. John says, if you hate your brother, you're a murderer. Jesus goes as far as saying, if you're angry with your brother, you're a murderer. So Jesus takes it a step further. But in both cases, it shows the severity. It shows how severe it is to harbor hatred or anger towards those who are of the household of faith. Hence why Jesus said, if you have something against your brother, if you have anything, if you're harboring anything against your brother, before you come and present your gifts before the altar, make amends with your brother. Do that, then you present your gifts. Because the implication is if you come with that hatred, that anger, that bitterness, that animosity towards your brother and sisters in Christ, he will not, just like Anna, he will not accept your offering. So when we gather like this, you can sing with fervor and passion. You can sing with gusto and pride. If that hatred is being harbored in your hearts, brothers and sisters, God is not going to accept it. John wraps up this theme of love in chapter 4, verses 7 to 21, which we'll eventually get to. But to zoom in on our text before us, love is from God. Love is of God. John says, whoever is born of God, in chapter 4, he says this, whoever is born of God, which we are if we're children of God, he makes that abundantly clear. We saw that last week. Those of us who are born of God has, must love. It has to be a part of who we are as children of God. This love, the love that God has for us, was manifested how he demonstrated it. He didn't just say it. It's demonstrated. He sent his son, his only son, that we might live through him. That's significant as well. We might live through Jesus, or put it in another way, we live as, as how Jesus Christ is, has lived and how he expects us to live. When something is repeated over and over in Scripture, it needs a little bit more attention. Not that the Scriptures in general don't, as we know, but it's, it's emphatic. John is trying to make a point. And the fact that John, again, is repeatedly saying, love one another, love one another, love one another. It speaks volume, and it attests to the fact that the recipients in Asia Minor 
seemingly weren't getting it. They weren't getting it. They weren't practicing love towards the brother and sisters in Christ. And that's probably because of the intermingling and the accepting and the compromising of the Gnostic teaching that focuses on yourself. Self-upliftment, self-spiritualization. They seem as if they were missing the mark on how to love the brothers and sisters in Christ. You cannot but come to that conclusion, the fact that John keeps repeating the same thing over and over again. So as we look at this theme, let us love one another, I want to highlight three things that I've gleaned from the text. Love's greatest resistance, love's greatest reinforcement, And love's greatest reassurance. And my heart's desire, Westmount, is that by the end of this sermon, our love for God and our love for our brothers and sisters in Christ will increase more and more. And I pray that that is your desire as well. And only when this happens, Westma, only when we experience what it means, what, when we experience and exhibit this love, we'll actually experience what it truly means to be called children of God. That's when that happens. Real growth in our lives will be possible when we sincerely, genuinely love God as we ought to and love the brothers as we ought to. Growth in the church all hinge on our relationship with God, our relationship with our brothers and sisters in Christ. So let us look at the first point, love's greatest resistance. I'm going to go through verses 11 to 15 With this point. But the word resistant or resistance means the refusal to accept or comply with something, the attempt to prevent something by action or argument, or the ability not to be affected by something, especially adversity. So there's a positive um, connotation to this word as well, and we'll see that. The latter definition is what we're told to do in our spiritual warfare with evil. Resist the devil. So resistance isn't always bad. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. James 4, 7, Ephesians chapter 6, we see the whole armor of God and resisting the devil there. But when we look at love's greatest resistance in the negative sense, we see envy that comes about. We see envy and hatred, blatant hatred. And envy is grudging regard for an advantage seen to be enjoyed or seen to be enjoyed by others. So in other words, you're hating, you're harboring this ill feeling just because someone is seemingly enjoying something or something positive is going on in their life as we are going to see in the example that is is given. 
John recounts the story for us, which was read by Gabe, with the story of two biological brothers, Cain and Abel, and it's stated explicitly in Genesis chapter 4. He states that the first ever murder in the history of humanity occurred between two siblings. Two siblings, biological um, um, brothers. Brother hurting brother. And this envy and strife came about how? From, From a religious standpoint. Cain looked, saw Abel like, God accepted you. God regarded you and your offering, and he rejected me. And instead of looking within himself and saying, what did I do wrong? How can I learn from my brother's religious experience? What did he do? Envy, hate. And he took action against that. Abel was killed because of his faith by his brother. Again, Genesis 4, 3 to 9 records this for for us. But something that I want you to take note of in Genesis is that Yahweh, God, regarded both the offerer and the offering of Abel. And Cain's was not. And you may have heard it before, and I won't take time to go into Genesis because we're not in the passage. It's just alluded to here that, oh, it's the kind of offering. It's because Abel offered to God blood sacrifice and Cain's was of the fruit, and that was unacceptable. But if you go to the Levitical law in terms of the offerings, grain offering was a form of offering. So it wasn't the offering. And even if that weren't the case, the text is abundantly clear that it wasn't the offering that God had an issue with. There was something more than the offering that God had a problem with. What did the text say? Turn there momentarily and let us analyze this as we use and see this example of how not to love, by the way, if you haven't zoomed in on that yet. How not to love. And verse 4, and Abel also brought, so this is after Cain brought the fruit of the ground. Abel also brought of the firstborn of the flock and of their fat portion. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said, why are you angry? Why, are you, why has your face fallen? If your offering was like that of Abel, your brother, you would be accepted. Is that what your text says? No. If you... If you do well, you will be accepted. But if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. It was a heart issue with Cain. 
It wasn't the offering issue. It was a heart issue with Cain. Cain's heart was not right towards his brother. Cain's heart was not right towards his God, which led him to brutally murder his brother. God made this clear in the text that it was his heart. The heart was not right. Hence, the sacrifice is going to be rejected. Hence why Jesus said, before you come and present that offering, as luscious and beautiful as it may look, whether it's in songs of praise or prayer or worship or preaching or whatever it is, make sure your heart is right before, for your brother, towards your brother, before you present that. Deal with that first, and then I will accept your offering. If you do well, you will be accepted. But instead of repenting, as I mentioned earlier, Cain harbored resentment towards his brother and hatred. This evil deed originated from the heart. His own evil desires. And as John says, he was of the evil one, referring to the devil. This is sad, heart-wrenching truth. Cain's evil desires were born of the devil. In other words, hatred, anger, murder are directly from the devil. We can develop hatred towards our brothers. It is not foreign to the church. It is not foreign to the believers. It is not foreign to the children of God. Hence why John uses the example of two biological siblings to show that hatred, just like in a biological context, does exist in a spiritual context within the church. We can develop that hatred towards our brothers and sisters in Christ for the mere fact that they're demonstrating righteousness. Have you ever heard, oh, they act so like they're holier than thou? And yes, we hear that from the world, but it comes from within the church as well. They act like they're so much better than we are spiritually, are better than I am spiritually. That's not, that's hatred. That is hatred. And then when God, again, going at the heart of Cain, like he did with Adam, Adam, where are you? God wasn't oblivious. God, Adam wasn't that intricate, perfect hider that he actually hid from God, and God was a man. This is, where, Adam, where are you? No, God wanted an acknowledgement. Cain, what's up with your brother? I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? Am I my brother's keeper? So I ask you, Westmill, are you your brother's keeper? Am I my brother's keeper? And the answer is absolutely 100% yes, you are. Yes, you are. If this is not the case, these commands about building each other up, edifying one another, coming together and worship like we're doing right now is completely and utterly irrelevant if we are not our brother's keeper. Storing each other up, gathering together, these are pointless commands if we, if you are not your brother's keeper. 
Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 doesn't say, let me, I am going to run with endurance. Let us, plural, collectively, let us run with endurance because we have witnesses surrounding us. Let us run. Let us draw close. Let us lay aside. Let us. We are our brother's keeper, folks. And we are called to love each other. Greatest resistance, envy. Greatest resistance, animosity and hatred. Love has no hatred embedded in it. And yes, you might say, of course, duh, that's obvious. It's love. It's two contradicting terms, love and hate. But it's so obvious that it's so hard for us to practice, to put into practice. Love has no animosity, has no hatred. To put simply, if you love your brother, if you sincerely, truly, genuinely love your brothers, there cannot be any single room at all in your heart to harbor hatred, envy, or strife, or malice towards them. Because the love that you have is so much, as Paul said, it's shed abroad, it's just dispersed, diverse in our hearts. We shouldn't have, we can't have any room for hatred. Because that leads to murder, or it's equivalent to murder. We can't love like Cain loved his brother, because that wasn't love. We can't love like the world loved because they don't love us. They don't love the brethren. John says it. Don't be surprised, brothers. Don't be surprised, verse 13, that the world hates you. And one might say, how does that fit into this context of the scripture? He's talking about Cain and how not to love our brothers and sisters in Christ. Then he said, okay, don't be surprised that the world hates you. And for us, again, that seems like an obvious thing to know. We are commanded not to love the world in 2.15 to 17 because it is where hatred dwells. It is where hatred belongs. Therefore, the believer should not be surprised that the system of hatred towards God and godliness hates those who are godly. Of course the world is going to hate us. Of course the world is going to hate you. Of course the world is going to hate me. The world hated Jesus Christ, the Son of God, did it not? It crucified him. We are his. We are his children. We are children of God. So by default, we are world haters or we're, hater. we're going to be hated by the world. So then why is this obvious statement, John? Why make this statement? Because of what it implies. It's because of what it implies. Shouldn't be shocked, shouldn't be appalled, shouldn't be a surprise when the world hates us. But the implication is what should cause our jaws to drop like in those cartoons? What should cause us to marvel in awe and amazement and wonder is when the believers hate each other. That's the implication. So that should shock us. Not just surprise, that should bring shock waves through our entire system. Of course the world is going to hate us. That's who they are. That's what their father is about. 
what's a shocker and should be a shocker is when we hate each other. When a professing Christian hates their brother and sister in Christ, that should cause utter amazement. Loving the brethren is showing the world, as Jason said, that we are not like them. That we are different from them. That we are not living in darkness. We are not abiding in darkness. We have passed from death to life, John says. That's our former way of living. That's our former way of, of life. We're not like that anymore. When we love the brothers and sisters in Christ, we are showing them the love or demonstrating to them the love that God has for us. Remember when we started, this is quite some time ago, but remember when we started this epistle. I said to you that everything that is said and will be said is hinged, and I just mentioned it at the, in the introduction, on our relationship with God and our relationship with each other. And again, folks, these aren't separate entities. We cannot have a right relationship with God if we do not have a right relationship with our brothers and sisters in Christ and vice versa. Which is why John keeps hitting this proverbial nail on the head with the phrase abide in him, remain in him, and while he is abiding in you. So simply put, our relationship with each other affects our relationship with God. And our relationship with God affects our relationship with each other. So if you are exhibiting any form of hatred, any form of animosity, envy, or strife towards your brother, they don't even have to be a member of this church or adherents of this church or attend this church. They might be from a different church, different congregation. If this is you, if this describes you in any way, shape, or form, I urge you, I implore you, make amend with your brother and sister in Christ. Don't even wait till the sermon is ended. Don't even wait till the service is ended. Do it now, folks. Do it now. Mend that broken relationship with your brother. As children, as dear children, as one who is practicing and should be practicing righteousness, as one who is abiding in Christ and Christ abiding in them, as children of light, as children of light. John ends the section, verse 15. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. Emphatic statement. But it doesn't stop there, says, and you know, this is evident to you, this isn't new knowledge. You know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in them. Heavy stuff. But love's greatest resistance is envy, it's hatred, it's animosity, it's strife. And that does not describe those who are called children of God.
But what about love's greatest reinforcement, 16 to 18? By this we know that he laid down his life for us and that we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world goods and see his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk but in deed and in truth. I want to highlight some of love's greatest reinforcements. We don't have to turn there. I'll just reference the, the passages for you in a few passages of Scripture. And again, try to emphasize how to strengthen our love for God, how to, how to strengthen our love for the brothers and sisters in Christ. The greatest character, of course, is love seen in 1 Corinthians 13, and especially verses 1 to 2. That is the greatest character, Paul tells us. And in James 2, we see faith without works is dead. And Paul in 1 Corinthians 13 is saying, love without any action is like an annoying noise. It's a meaningless symbol. If your faith allows you to move mountain, but you lack love, Paul says, then that's nothing. You're nothing. It's nothing. It means absolutely nothing. And of course, he gives a list of things that love is and what love isn't in 1 Corinthians 13. A remarkable yet familiar passage of Scripture to us. But it's so easily overlooked. So profound, but so easily overlooked. And in that list that Paul gives in 1 Corinthians 13, he says, love is not irritable or resentful. It's not irritable or resentful. It's the greatest character that you can have. But love is also the greatest commandment. In Matthew chapter 23, verses 37 to 40, Love is the greatest virtue that any of us as believers can display. And that's why Jesus summarized the entire Bible, the entirety of Scripture. Jesus Christ said it's summed up in these two commandments. You know them. Love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourselves. Jesus says on these two Hinge all the law and the prophets and the writings. So the entire Old Testament hinge on these two laws. You can take the Ten Commandments, you can take the Pentateuch, take the entirety of the Old Testament and even the New and summarize it in loving God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, loving our brothers and sisters in Christ. It's the greatest commandment. It's the greatest confirmation seen in John chapter 13, verse, 20, verse 35. By this all, by this you, by this action, all people will know that you are my disciples. By showing love towards your brothers and sisters in Christ, we sung it earlier. This is how the world is going to know who you're of, who you're from. What a way, Westmount, to testify to the world. To testify to the world. 
of who Christ is, what he has done for us in a nonverbal manner, showing them how to love by loving one another. Greatest confirmation. It's our greatest testimony when the world sees us acting differently than they are acting. It's also our greatest motivation. 2 Corinthians 5.14 and John 21 verse 16. What is it that motivates you? For those of you who are Leafs fan, and I forgive me, I'm going there. For those of you who are Leafs fan, what is it that motivates you to watch a Leafs game week in, week out? What is it that motivates you to watch a Raptors game? For me, what is it that motivates me to watch Manchester United on a weekly basis? In other words, what is it that motivates you to watch your favorite sports team? Especially if they're not winning titles. It has to be the love for the team, is it not? That's your motivation right there. It's the love for the game. It's the love for the team. What is it that motivates you to, to put up those beautiful lights and decorations at Christmas time? Even though there are a lot of work, there are pain to go in the basement and try to sort through all of these intricacies of these decorations. It's your love for seeing the lights and the beauty that they display. Well, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 14... The love of God controls him. So everything that he does hinges on the love of God that has been displayed in his life. That is Paul's motivation to do things righteously and godly. That is Paul's motivation to love the brothers and sisters in Christ, even if they're not displaying love towards him. Because God loves him, and that love controls everything he does. That is his motivation. So I ask you again, what is your motivation to love the brothers and sisters in Christ? It has to be the love of God. It has to be that love that Paul describes for us in 1 Corinthians 5, 14, that controls you. Everything you do must be driven by the love of God, the love that God has for you. Which means that love is not going to drive you towards envy or strife towards your brother. That love is not going to drive you to have hatred or harbor hatred in your heart towards your brothers and sisters in Christ. It can't because God is love and he's of love. In similar fashion, Jesus exhorts Peter to use this same motivation to be effective minister, an effective minister to his people. Jesus saw Peter. Peter went back fishing because he thought Jesus is dead. He's gone to. He's dead, and everything is done and dusted. You know what? I'm going to go back to my old way of life. I'm going to go back fishing. Brought some of his colleagues with him. Jesus came on the shore, and Jesus asked him those same questions. And you can, in the text, you can see and sense Peter's frustration. Why are you asking me the same question three times? Do you love me? 
feed my sheep. Do you love me, Peter? Do you love me more than these? Feed my sheep. Feed my lamb. And oh, did Peter ever use that love motivation that was demonstrated in Christ to be a powerful and effective minister. You see that in Acts. You read it through in his two epistles. That's the love. That's the great motivation for us, folks. The love that God has for us and has instilled in us. And we see love as the greatest movement in verses 16 to 18 that we just read. How do we know what love looks like? Real love, true love, sincere love, not the love that the world is describing, which in most cases is just lust and sinful desires and a sinful heart. We see what true love looks like in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. That is the definition of love. Mentioned multiple times in scripture. And that's the bar that is set for you and I, Westmount. The same love that Christ has had and still has for his people, for the church. That is the love that we are compelled, we are commanded to have for the brothers and sisters in Christ. Why am I saying this? Because it's right there in the text. Just like he laid down his life for you, we have to come to the point where we say, I will and can lay down my life for the brothers and sisters in Christ. So let me ask you this question. Let me ask you this. When you visualize this church, Try to take a mental picture right this minute, right this instant. Think of all the the faces that aren't here today and picture a full house, every single person present. Visualize each face individually, minus wife and kids, because that's going to be too simplistic, too easy. But then ask yourself this question. The person sitting in front of you or that should be sitting in front of you, the person that's sitting behind you, would you lay down your life? Not just saying these things. That's why John ends this section saying, don't just say it. Prove it. Would you lay down your life for your brother and sister in Christ? If it came, that's our true test. That is the test that faces us. Not just my wife, my loving wife. Of course I would lay down my life for my wife. Of course I would sacrifice my life for my kids. That's without question. Of course I would do that. Would you lay down your life for the brother and sister in Christ? Because that's your spiritual family. That is the big question, West Point. That is the bar that is set for us. And like John said, this is not just love with words. This has to be love with action. It's easy for us to utter words. It's easy for us to say things. It's more challenging to actually prove things, to live out things. You don't have to answer that question 
Obviously, that's something that you need to mull over in your mind, in your head. I don't know your hearts, but it makes you think, man, do I really love my brother and sister in Christ? If it comes to that point, if this is my test, do I really love my brother and sister in Christ? Easy to love in word, easy to love in speech. And John recognizes this, harder to love through action. But it's our greatest reinforcement. And that is the example that has been set and given by Christ himself. A third and final point, love's greatest reassurance in verses 19 to 24 as we wrap up the chapter. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and are reassured and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart. He knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does condemn us, we have confidence before God. Whatever we ask, we receive from him because he, we keep his commandment and do as he pleases or do what he pleases. The greatest reassurance is a good conscience, brothers and sisters. It's a good conscience. John's declaration, if your heart condemns you, God is greater than your heart. And what causes our heart to condemn us contextually? It's the lack of love that we display for our brothers and sisters in Christ. So when you have that malice or that hatred or that bitterness or that anger in your heart, that's a condemning heart. And even though Christ had propitiated all of our sins, he's made an atonement for all our sins by his perfecting work on the cross, we may experience and will experience a condemning heart or a guilty conscience, something that a great and omnipotent God does know about us. So when my conscience, when your conscience sends you on a guilt trip, you and I look in faith to God. Who is greater than our hearts? And he assures you and I of his total and complete forgiveness through the perfect work of Jesus Christ on the cross. So when that heart condemns us, yes, we go back to 1 John 1 verse 9. We have to confess. Because God knows that there's sin crouching there and it's lying there. We can't deceive him. But he's still greater than that sin, folks. God can crush that resentful heart, that hateful heart, and transforms it. He can take away that hatred and that resentment. But we have to confess it. We have to confess it. We know, we know that the Bible teaches that it is possible to be saved and yet have doubts and discouragement. We know that the Bible is clear that we as believers will fall. We will falter. We will stumble. We will slip up. 
But do I really believe what the Bible says about Jesus Christ? That should be in reassurance to us. Greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. And when this happens, am I really obeying God as I ought to? That's a question, another question we need to ask. Is my love for others what it should be? Is what it should be. If our heart does condemn us, if we live in sincerity, with a clear conscience, without showing or masking our sins, if our hearts are not harboring hatred or anger or bitterness or deceit, here is what that heart looks like. Paul said, or John Sorry says, we have confidence towards God. It doesn't mean that we have confidence towards God on the grounds of what we do. It's still on the ground of what Christ has done for us. And through Christ, we have boldness, we have confidence in, Christ, in God. We have confidence in prayer. We can go to God, as the author of Hebrews said, boldly approach the throne of grace to attain mercy and find grace to help in time of trouble, whether it's confessing, whether it's praising. Psalm 66, verse 18, If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. When we have a clear conscience, Westmount, we have confidence not only to go to God in prayer, but also that our prayers will be answered. Now, mind you, the answer is not contingent on what we want or even how righteous we're living. It's still based on how, what God wants, his will. It's still his will be done. So it's not a, oh, so I'm living righteous, so I should be asked for anything and God says he's going to give it to me. It's still according to his will, his purpose. As I mentioned, when something is repeated in Scripture, it's for emphasis. John talks about loving each other over and over in the epistle. He's going to go and touch on it again in chapter 4. But John's not the only author. And do you really think that God wants us? Do you think that God wants the believers to love each other? How much do you think that God desires for us to actually genuinely love one another? John 13 verse 34, guess what that says? Love one another. John 15, verse 12. Take a wild guess. Love one another as I, this is Jesus speaking, as I have loved you. John 15, 17. Love one another. Romans 12, verse 10. Show family affection to one another with brotherly love. Romans 13, verse 8. Except to love, this is where Paul saying, oh, no one, nothing. 
except to love one another. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Galatians 5 verse 13, serve one another through love. Ephesians 4, 1 to 2, accepting one another in love. 1 Thessalonians 3, 12, increase and overflow with love for one another. 1 Thessalonians 4, 9, taught by God to love one another. Hebrews 10, 24, promote love and good works. 1 Peter 1.22, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. 1 Peter 4.8, love each other since love covers a multitude of, thi- of sins. And in this letter, 1 John 3.23, 4.7, it also appears in 2 John verse 5. Obviously, folks, obviously, Westmount, God thinks, God believes, and God knows that loving the brothers and sisters in Christ is not just important, but it is of utmost importance. It has to be when every, almost every single New Testament author touches on the topic. Brothers. Westmount, let us love one another. Let us love one another. Father God, such a simplistic truth, such a common phrase in our day and age, this is wrapped up in so much immorality, so much sensuality. It's a cliche in so many senses. And yet, Lord, as is evident in Scripture, so challenging to actually live out. To love our brothers and our sisters in Christ as you have called us to love them. God, give us that desire God, may we live and practice love towards each other in the manner that you have set forth for us, not only in 1 John chapter 3, but throughout the entirety of your word. And as our love for each other grow, may our love for you grow. And as our love for you grow, Lord, may our love for each other continue to increase and abound even more. God, forgive us. Forgive us when we have thought too highly of ourselves. Forgive us when we have loved in the manner that Cain loved his brother, which in reality wasn't love. Forgive us, Lord, when we have exhibited love like the world loves, again, which isn't love, it's hatred. Forgive us of any animosity, any envy, any strife that we may or are harboring. And God, may we deal with them. May we make things right with our brothers if we are not sincerely, genuinely loving them as we ought to. And may we exhibit that sacrificial love and may it continue and abide in us for Christ's sake.
Amen.